Hey man, well what's up Heartland? How we doing? Good. Yeah? You guys having fun so far? Yeah. What's been your favorite part? Just yell it out. Oh. <laughs> what mud day? Oh. No? <laughs> you guys are like no. No mud day. What, what was it? Mud? Yeah. Okay, you liked it. Uh, what? Food? The food's good? Alright. Because you can eat as much as you want here. Yeah. You just keep going back and yeah, it's it's incredible. What about over here? What ladies, what's your favorite part so far? The zip line. Okay, that's cool. Paintball? That was fun. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you shoot anybody like you wanted to shoot when you came up to camp? Like you really hoped like if I could just shoot this one person and it happened? Oh, you're on the same team? Oh. So you have somebody you really want to shoot, though. Okay, that's cool. I'm sure a lot of you have that, those people in your life. Well, um, I'm excited. I'm excited tonight about what God has in store because uh, I want to kind of remind you of where we've been so far. Last night, we talked about the truth of God, specifically the truth of God that's substantiated in creation. Uh, and then this morning we talked about the truth of scripture and it was a lot of information. I know it was a lot to digest, but there's so much out there that just points to the fact that, that God's word is true. And I need you guys to understand that, that God is truth and that God's word is truth. And then tonight we're going to talk about the one thing that during Jesus's time transformed thousands upon thousands of people. Are you ready for that? Yeah. We're going to talk about the life of Jesus because, because creation is great and, and God's word is great and both of them are true. But when you want to know Jesus, you look at his life and so many people as they walked this earth with Jesus, they just saw how he lived. They thought they saw his character. They saw what he did and they longed for more. The way Jesus lived is, is what tells us who he is. Anybody here dating? Like have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Like not like each other. Like it's fine if you're, you just have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Okay. So, so I remember when I was dating my wife. So my wife and I started dating when I was 19 years old and uh, I started dating her. And what I realized is as you start to date someone, you, it really is a great way to get to know them. You're around them all the time. You're, you're, you're experiencing who they are and how they lived life. You're, you're learning things about them because of the things that they say and the things that they do. If you put yourself around them enough, all of a sudden you walk away with a greater knowledge of who they are. I, I learned about my wife early on uh, about her passions. She's always wanted to be a mom. As, as long as I can remember, my wife wanted to be a mom. And, and, and now she has four daughters and someday she doesn't want to be a mom anymore. Um, but mosquito, but, but she's always wanted to be a mom. She's also always wanted to be a teacher. And now she's a, a high school teacher. She teaches uh, math, like who teaches math, but she teaches math and, and she loves it. 
As we were dating, I learned the things that she doesn't like. She she really doesn't like a couple of things. Um, tomatoes, not her jam. Like she likes ketchup because it has sugar in it, but she doesn't like tomatoes. Uh, she would never just eat them. And when she orders a burger, it's without tomatoes. She does not love tomatoes. She also, to my disdain, she does not like Jim Carrey movies. Anybody else? Yeah, I don't know. She's crazy. I know. She's... She likes Adam Sandler, but she's not a Jim Carrey fan. He annoys her, I guess. The Grinch. The Grinch. She actually doesn't mind The Grinch, but she's not a fan of, like, Dumb and Dumber. Or she's not a fan of any of, like, like Ace Ventura. Like, she's not, they just annoy her. So I, I learned, I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text her later and be like, the whole camp doesn't like you. Um, sorry, honey. Uh, but I, I learned what her life was like as we started to date. I, I, I learned about her home life, that, that, you know, she has two great parents. Her dad was a police officer. Her mom stayed at home. She has a really annoying brother. Uh, like, I learned all of this stuff about her life. I learned uh, about her work life. She waited tables. I learned the ways that God has gifted her. And just by being around her and experiencing her life, I learned so much about her. I learned her character. That woman is the most selfless woman I've ever met in my his, the history of my life. She would give anything to anyone who is in need. And she's the best mom of our four daughters that I could have ever hoped for. I, I learned all of this. I learned about, about her love for Jesus simply by spending time with her. The best place to learn about someone is from watching that someone. And the, the same is true of Jesus. As we open up God's word, we're going to learn so much about who Jesus is from the way he lived his life, from the things that he said, the teachings that he gave us. Jesus lived a unique life. In fact, uh, there's a lot we don't know about Jesus's life. Do you know most of the Bible, most of the gospel records three years of Jesus's life? He lived 33 years, and most of it just records three years. Other than those three years, we have the story of his birth. We, we have a story of him being dedicated shortly after his birth. And we have him at 12 years old teaching in the temple. Essentially, that's all we know about the first 30 years of his life. Because the gospel writers, they wanted you to know uh, about those things. But, but really the focus is now where we're going to focus the rest of our time, which is the life and teachings of Jesus as he starts his ministry on earth. Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Get that. Jesus has felt the same temptations you and I have. Everything that we've experienced, Jesus has experienced, which means Jesus, Jesus is not someone who came down unable to sin. You have to know that he, he was fully able to sin. And yet watch how this finishes. Verse 15. So, so he, he's been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was able to sin, but he, he didn't. Can you imagine? You guys have siblings? Anybody? Yes. Jesus had siblings too. Did you know that? Yeah. He had brothers and sisters. Do you know that? Okay, so I'm not teaching you anything new right now. You knew that. <laughs> Nailed it. Good job, buddy. What's your name? 
Keith, Keith knew. So, so Jesus had siblings. Can you imagine being a brother or a sister of Jesus? It's like, like everything that went wrong and you just know like, Oh, it wasn't Jesus. Like the guy never lied. He never talked trash. He never fought, fought with his siblings. He never cheated on a test. He always did his chores. He honored his mother and his father. He was, he was reading the Bible. He was in the scriptures. Can you imagine being his brother or his sister? How annoying would that be? So annoying. And yet it's so cool because Jesus came and, and he lived a perfect life. And as he did, he did these incredible things. And I want tonight, I want to skip rocks. Have you heard that term before? I want to skip rocks through the, the gospel of John a little bit. And I want to look at the life and the teachings of Jesus. We're going to start in John 2. If you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to do a lot of flipping because we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. We're going to talk about some miracles. We're going to talk about some stories. We're going to start in John 2. In John 2, we have the first recorded miracle of Jesus. Anybody know what it is? Water into wine. Water into wine. That, good job. You guys, are, you guys are on top of it. Okay, so Jesus is going to change water into wine. So he finds himself at this wedding in a, a place called Cana. And he's at this wedding and his mom's there and they run out of wine. And in Jewish culture, wine was important. You would, you would often serve the best wine first. And then as people drank more and more wine, they would get worse and worse wine that served to them. It's because they couldn't actually tell uh, they couldn't actually tell that the wine was getting worse. And so, so the wine, the, the wedding's going incredibly well. And, and Jesus's mom is in charge uh, of putting it on. And, and, and she comes to Jesus and she says, we have a catastrophe. We're out of wine. It's like how I would feel if we were like out of tri-tip. Like, it, it, yeah, exactly. So, right. Yeah. So, so, so she comes to Jesus and she's like, Jesus, son, we are out of wine. And that was, that was dis disgraceful to run out of wine at a wedding was disgraceful. And so, so Jesus sees this as a, an issue. He doesn't want his mom uh, to be disgraced. And so, so Jesus goes and, and what he does is he fills up these, these, uh, these buckets, these large, large barrels, and, and he changes water into wine and, and not just any wine. Could you imagine Jesus just changing the water into like awful wine? Like it would never happen. And so the Bible says Jesus changed it into the best wine that they had ever tasted. And here's what's interesting about that. Before Jesus dies, he gets his disciples together and they do one last meal together. It's called the Last Supper. And what, what does he say about the wine? He says, this is my blood. And so we go all the way back to John 2, and we see as Jesus does this incredible miracle, this, this miracle in John 2 is pointing forward to the blood of Christ, which is going to be, be shed on the cross for our sins. And it's not just average, ordinary, everyday wine. It's the best of the best. And so in John 2, we see Jesus starting to live out who he is, starting to put on display that he is, in fact, the Savior of the world. Flip over to, to John chapter 3. 
In John chapter 3, we have this encounter with a, a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It, it's, it's a fascinating story. We're actually going to read through it a little bit. But the reason why it's so fascinating is because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and Pharisees hated Jesus. They were threatened by him. They didn't want him to, to take their power from, from them. And so, so they hated Jesus. And, and yet what Jesus was doing was starting to catch the attention of people. And so in John chapter 3, what Jesus is doing, it catches the attention of this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Look at verse 1 and following. It says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's not even just an average Jew. He's the ruler. He's a ruler of the Jews. And it says in verse two, this man came to Jesus by night. He couldn't go during the day because he didn't want to be seen. He couldn't be seen by his peers as, as submitting to Jesus. He, he, he went by night so that nobody would see him. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nobody. So, so think back to the, the wedding at Cana. Think back to the miracles Jesus had started to do after the wedding at Cana. And all of a sudden people are going, nobody could do these things, but God himself. The life of Jesus is starting to testify that he is who he says he is. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The first birth the first birth is in the hospital. The first birth is, is from your mom. The, the first birth happens and you come into this world. And when you're born into this world, you're born into sin. The first birth does not free you from sin. And so, so what Jesus is saying is the first birth was not enough. If you want to be, if you want to be saved, you need to be born a second time, born of the spirit born through your, your, your faith in Jesus, or else you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't approach God on your own. It's not like you live this good life and you get to the end of your good life and, and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you in? And you're like, I was a really good person. And he's going to look at you and go, by whose standard? See, the only way we come to God, something has to happen. There has to be a transaction. There has to be a, a new birth. And as you're hearing in the truth of the scriptures this week, I'm, I'm praying for you. As you're listening to what, what God's word has to say, I'm praying for you that something happens in your life. That something changes in who you are. Whether it's, whether it's you don't have a relationship with Jesus and then you do have a relationship with Jesus or it's, and I, I really haven't been living out my faith and I, and I come up to camp at Heartland and now I'm, I'm just re-energized for the Lord. I'm praying for you that God would do that work in your life, that you would hear the gospel, that you would believe in the work of Jesus and that you would place your faith in him as your savior and that you would live out of that new identity that you would be reborn. That's my prayer. Flip over to John chapter four. John chapter four, there's this incredible, 
encounter. It's a woman, a woman who goes to visit a well. Look in verse 3, verses 3 and 4. This woman at the well, this encounter starts this way. It says, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he's going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. He's heading south to north. And and it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. There were three different routes, three different routes that you could take south to north. And what Jesus did is he chose the route that was the hardest route to take. He chose to to take this route. And so when it says he had to pass through Samaria, it's because he was compelled to, not because it was the only way. He was compelled to pass through Samaria. And he he takes this more difficult route. He takes the the more controversial route. See, what was going on at the time was this ethnic ethnic division, this Jew and Samaritan. The the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They didn't worship on the Temple Mount. And so the Jews had, had hatred for the Samaritans. And so Jesus, Jesus is, is a reconciler to who he is. And so Jesus, Jesus chooses to go through Samaria so that him and his, his 12 Jewish disciples would encounter this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And what we're going to see is this reconciler, Jesus, is going to take it one step Further, look at verse 7 and following. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Here's the, the context, right? We talked about it already. For for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so she looks at Jesus, this, this Jewish man, obviously at least a rabbi, and she goes, why would you ask for a drink from me? Aren't you worried that I'll contaminate your water? Aren't you worried that, that somehow I would do something to cause you to be unclean? And Jesus answers her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And so Jesus is going, you, you keep coming here. You keep coming to the well, and you keep dipping, it, dipping your, your, your jug into the well to pull up water. He says, but I have water that is living water. I have water that is sustaining for you. And she says in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? She had no clue. The answer is yes. But he he gave us the well and drank from it himself as, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So what the woman's thinking about is, is she's thinking about physical water. She's thinking that she could have, that Jesus somehow could give her water that causes her to not have to keep coming to the well every single day in the heat of the middle of the day. 
She, under, she didn't understand that Jesus was thinking about something much more refreshing. We'll get to that in a little bit. But then things are going to get real because we're going to see that this encounter that Jesus has is about much more than just water. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one now you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, you know things about me nobody else knows. She's been hiding from her very own people. She's at the well in the middle of the day. You know what that means? She's avoiding people because a woman like her of less than reputable character would be ridiculed and made fun of because, because she was living this life of sin. And yet we see Jesus in, this, in the, the midst of this. He's, he's that complete, complete balance of truth and grace that I talked about last night. We, we see Jesus with this woman at the well, and he, he's giving her living water. He's offering it to her at least, and, and, and yet he, he calls out her sin. I wonder what Jesus would say if he looked at your life today. If he looked at you and, and he was to point at the, the sin in your life, what, what part of truth would he point to? But here's the beauty. The beauty is that, is that he, he off, offers her grace. That living water that brings eternal life in the midst of her sin. He doesn't say, go get your life right and then come back and I'll give you the living water. He offers her living water first and then he points out her sin. He says, go and sin no more. And what we're going to see in verses 25 and 26 is that She's going to ask a really important question. The woman says to him, verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. How did she know? Scripture told her. The truth of Scripture. She knew the Messiah was coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who you speak to, I who speak to you am he. And so we see the first mention of Jesus being the Messiah. And I wonder what this what you think this says about Jesus. The first time he reveals that he is the Messiah, he reveals it to an ethnically diverse, immoral woman. He didn't go to the Pharisees who thought that they were, that they were higher than, than, than Jesus. He didn't go to the, the people who thought they were the, the, the moral majority. He went to an ethnically diverse, immoral woman. And there, at, at a well in Samaria, he reveals the fact that he is the Messiah. Other places in scripture, he says, he says, the healthy have no need for a doctor. He's there to meet a woman who knows that she is broken. And in the midst of her brokenness, he offers her grace. And I want you to notice in verse 39 and following the, the response that happens, not just in her life, but in the life of others. It says in verse 39, many believed because of the word the woman told him, told them. She, 
She received what Jesus was offering, the grace that he offered, and she ran back to her her community, the, the community she's been avoiding for a long period of time, and she couldn't wait to tell them about what Jesus has done for her. But Jesus followed her, verse 41 and 42. It says, and many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They heard about Jesus, but then they experienced Jesus for themselves, and his testimony and his teaching left them with one possibility, that he is the Messiah. Flip over to John chapter 5 the next story of Jesus's life. It happens at a, 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 a bunch of pools. I've actually been there. It's really cool. They're super deep and, and, uh, and they used to have water in them. They don't anymore, but these pools are called the pools of Bethesda. And, and, and what we're going to see is, is that these pools were, were thought um, that they belonged to, to the god Asclepius. And Asclepius was the Greek god of, of medicine. He was the son of Apollo. And so what you would see is these, these people would, would, would line up, these people who had injuries or were born uh, blind or, or with, uh, un, unable to walk, they, they would show up. And what happens in, in, is the story is going to pick up in verse 3. It says, In these lay a multi- multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years years and so in verse 6 it continues when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time he said to him do you want to be healed this man had been had been lame for 38 years he experienced Jesus and Jesus asked him this weird question do you want to be healed like Everybody reads that and they're like, of course he wants to be healed. He's laying by the pools for a reason. Of course he wants to be healed. And so in verse 7, the the sick man answers him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, uh, while I am going, another steps down before me. The, The thought was that the God of Asclepius would swirl the waters once a day. In reality, it was just like a toilet. It was like drainage from somewhere. And it was, would swirl the waters. And they believed that this was the god Asclepius, the, the god of medicine. And if the first person who could roll themselves into the water or walk into the water, that they would receive healing. And so he's saying, I, I don't have anybody. Nobody will pick me up and put me into the water. So how could I be healed? He was looking to the world for healing. He wanted to find it in the things that the world had to offer. And he's standing face to face with Jesus, the God of the universe. And in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. And, And what we see is Jesus is saying to him, You don't need the way of the world. You don't need what the world has to offer to find healing. Jesus didn't pick him up and heal him with the pools. He just simply said, get up and walk. He didn't want the healing that Jesus was going to be doing associated with the things of the world. 
And what's interesting is Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is found in Genesis 1 and Exodus 20. It's a a time period where where work was prohibited. It's a time of rest. And the Pharisees got it all wrong. And and they started to to be really legalistic about it. Jesus would come later and say, say basically, the the Sabbath is for us. That he's the God of the Sabbath. And and, and so in John 5, the Pharisees are going to pick up on the fact that he did something illegal. He healed on the Sabbath. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in place. And I want you to see what's starting to happen. We're seeing the life of Jesus move forward on the timeline. And what's starting to happen is people are changing. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Nicodemus called him a good teacher. The woman at the well called her called him a prophet. The man healed at the pools called him a man. And people are trying to, to figure out who is this Jesus. And so we have to ask the question, well, if they're asking who he, who he is, then we have to ask who he is. Who is Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us who he is in John 4. It's when he said, he said to the woman at the well, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And so in John 5, 16 and 17, the, the encounter at the pool ends. It says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now and I am working. I want you to notice what he says. He says, my father is working until now. And so I am working. You're going to notice also in John 5, 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus, there's this thing out there that says Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'm showing you right now, Jesus claimed to be God. It was a very bold claim, a, a claim that made the Pharisees want to kill him. He says that that God is his father, making him equal with God. Flip over to John 6. What I'm trying to do is, as I show you the evidence, I want you to see the life of Christ, that he wasn't an ordinary man, that he did some incredible, incredible things. In John chapter 6, uh, we see Jesus. We're going to get back to it. We're not going to focus a lot on it tonight because we're going to get back to it. We're going to spend a whole message on it later in the week. But, but in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He miraculously feeds the 5,000 with, with bread and fish. And Jesus makes a bold statement in, in John chapter 6 after he does this. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So Jesus, he feeds the 5,000, and then he says, I'm the bread of life. 
He says, he, he, he says, he says, whoever believes, whoever um, comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. His disciples, all the people around him, not the 12, but the people who were following him, thought that, that, that he was telling them to eat his flesh. But what he was really saying was something greater. And what we see after this encounter is that everybody leaves him, everybody but the, the 12. They couldn't handle seeing greater things. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, where else would we go? We're convinced. We've seen your life. We've, we've seen what you've done. Nobody else could do what you're doing. There's no way you could be anything but the Messiah. And then in John chapter 7, he says this. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He continues what he said in John chapter four. So now we see Jesus is, is calling himself the bread of life. He's calling himself living water. What's interesting about that is Bread is food, and water is water. And bread and water, food and water are the very things that sustain life. Bread and water are the very things that sustain life. What Jesus is saying is that he and he alone is the source of life. That he is the, he is the bread of life, and he is the, the living water. And that in him, in him alone, is where life is found. Not life in this world, but eternal life. And at the end of each of these encounters, his listeners had to decide, was this a coincidence, what he did? Did it just happen that this man by the pools of Bethesda was healed? Did it just happen that the water turned into wine? Was it a coincidence? Could it be explained away another way? Could it be that somebody snuck in and poured wine into the, the very same jugs that Jesus poured water into? Or is Jesus exactly who he said he is? See, that question requires personal responsibility. What I mean by that is we have to answer the question, who do we say Jesus is? See, you came to camp, and my guess is a lot of you, not all of you, but a lot of you come from a Christian home. And a lot of you have been getting by on your parents' faith. They pick you up. They take you to church. They, they make sure you go to youth group even when you don't want to go. Some of your parents dropped you off at camp, and this is the last place you wanted to be. You've been getting by on your parents' faith. But the truth is that, that we have to answer that question for ourselves. Who 
is Jesus. In John 3, he's a teacher. In John 4, he's a prophet. In John 5, he's just a man. In John 6, he's the bread of life. In John 7, he's living water. Everyone throughout Jesus's life was asking the same question that our world is asking today. Who is Jesus? And tomorrow, we're going to answer that question. Tomorrow, we're going to deal with that truth. But for today, I want you to know that Jesus's very life is the evidence of what we're going to talk about tomorrow. The way that he lived, the miracles that he did, the teachings that he gave, the, the intimacy of his life with God is the very evidence that he is who he says he is. And so as I wrap up, I want you guys to think about that question. Who is this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I'm... once again grateful that as we pour over the pages of your word we're met time and time again with the truth that Jesus substantiates his claims that he is who he says he is he he performed miracles he he made the blind see and he made the the deaf hear and he made the mute speak and he he made the lame walk and he healed lepers and he brought people back from the dead. These are, these are undisputed things that Jesus did, recorded in your word. And I hope my prayer for all of us here is that the truth of Jesus's life would stir us, would stir in us a devotion to him that we can't get away from the fact that he is the truth, that he is who he says he is, that we would let that truth wash over our lives and stir us to deep devotion to him. In Jesus' name, amen.